Welcome to another episode of the Bridging Theology Podcast, which connects scholarship to the Christian life. I'm Dr. Ryan Reed. And I'm Dr. Westervelt. We are members of the Bridging Theology hosting team, along with Drs. Candace Smith, John Stobel, Claudia Herrera-Montero, and Kevin Hill. Um, today we're joined by a, a guest host, Colin Toffelmeyer, who's going to be joining us for this conversation. And um, at this point, he can introduce himself a little bit, and he's going to introduce our guests as well. Thanks very much, Ryan. Uh, my name is Dr. Colin Toffelmeyer. I am Associate Professor of Old Testament Studies at Ambrose University in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also the chair for the Undergraduate School of Ministry at Ambrose. Uh, and it's my pleasure to introduce our guests, one of whom is a regular host of this podcast, which is why I'm a guest host for the podcast this time. Uh, so I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Beth Stovell, who is Professor of Old Testament and Chair of General Theological Studies at Ambrose Seminary at Ambrose University in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, and Dr. David J. Fuller, who is Assistant Professor of Old Testament at Torch Trinity Graduate University in Seoul, South Korea. And I'll also say both longtime friends of mine and uh, Beth, especially a long, long time friend of mine and uh, uh, former alums of McMaster Divinity College. So I go way back with both (laughs) of these guys. So welcome here, Beth and David. Really glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Colin. Yeah. Um, So just wanted to give you as a listener, just a sense of how our conversation will work today. So this conversation will have three sections or movements. Uh, So we'll begin by uh, talking about this this book um, and uh, uh, Beth and uh, David's scholarship. Then we'll explore how uh, this work connects to the Christian life and the life of the church. And lastly, we'll talk about marginalia, uh, some fun questions that we have for both of them um, to get to know them a bit as a whole person. So, um, and so sometimes while this marginalia might seem you know, separate from um, other things, their academic work. Um, we believe, you know, people are whole people. And so this will be a great way to get to know them as as that. So I'm um, really excited about that. Well, yeah, Beth and David, um, welcome to the Bridging Theology uh, podcast, especially uh, Beth, welcome in a weird sense, but uh, thanks yeah. so much for joining. <laughs> <laughs> so, a little bit odd, but. <laughs> yeah, welcome to, to being a guest. So um, yeah, David, we're so glad to have you today. So we wanted to begin the conversation today, um, just thinking, uh, just kind of like what we were just saying, getting to know you as as whole people, and uh, we'd love to know a little bit about your journey um, to to the Christian faith, and then to becoming Christian scholars, and that and your vocation as Christian scholars. So love to hear from both um, David and you, Beth. Maybe we'll start with you, David, just because you're uh, our new newest guest. Hey, that sounds great. Yeah, thank, thanks so much for having me here today. I'm re- really excited to be here. Um, yeah, about journey into faith and into Bible scholarship. Yeah, about faith, I, I had the blessing of being born into a Christian home. Uh, my parents encouraged me to be involved in the church from a young age. Um, so yeah, starting in junior high or so, I was regularly involved in uh, music and worship ministry in church. Um, and I initially headed off to college with the uh, with the expectation of going into uh, musical ministry of some sort, perhaps becoming a, a worship pastor or working working in music in some way. And my interest shifted very quickly when I started taking my core of Bible and theology classes, and I was very very intrigued by all that I was suddenly learning about God's Word. And I got very intrigued with what my professors did. 
Um, so I started spending time asking them about what it had looked like for them to get to where they went vocationally. Um, particular uh, Dr. Gord Osti, I'm sure all of you know, uh, he was he was very very inspirational to me and very helpful in explaining what it looks like to do a doctorate and all these things that professors do, like publishing and going to conferences. Uh, so then after undergrad, I headed off to McMaster Divinity College, uh, where I did an MA and a PhD. Uh, I finished up in spring of 2018, and I really appreciated my time at MDC. I was given the opportunity to explore very uh, broad topics, uh, especially the history of Old Testament research, uh, more abstract topic areas, such as uh, linguistics, hermeneutics. Um, yeah, after graduation, I was I was very blessed uh, to have a an ongoing uh, part time position as the managing editor of McMaster Divinity College Press. That gave me some employment uh, within academia that kept kept me connected and helped uh, helped keep me going. As I uh, was also then fortunate to have the opportunity to teach as an adjunct in several several different Canadian institutions over the next few years. Um, including a couple courses at Ambrose University. Um, nice. I was very, very excited to be involved with, of course. We were and, happy to have um, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, th those were a great experience. And then sent out many, many job applications. And my full-time offer came from Torch Trinity in fall of 2021. Um, then there was a bit of a delay in getting some of the paperwork sorted out for immigration moving over there. So it was actually just a couple of weeks ago that the family and I officially moved to South Korea. So very, very excited to be starting my first full-time teaching semester in person uh, this, this March. Cool. That's great. Yeah. And Beth, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think I, for those who have heard the first episode of yeah. season one, we do talk about this a little bit. So I'll try not to rehearse too much of what we've talked about before, but a little bit of my story grew up with uh, Christian parents. Um, in fact, I think I tried to evangelize like my first year of kindergarten. Um, there's stories of me going up to people just saying, did you know Jesus loves you um, as like a little kid? Um, so uh, so we'll always, I've always had that as a part of my life. Um, I originally was going to be a pediatric neurosurgeon. I planned to uh, open kids' brains. Um, that was my original plan. Um, and I ended up realizing that um, I wasn't made to be that kind of a doctor, but I didn't really know what I was going to be. Uh, so I did an English and classics degree at the University of Texas. And uh, then eventually prayed about seminary, um, felt led to move to Canada, which was a big move for me. I had never lived more than like 20 minutes from my parents before that. Uh, so I started over a new life in Canada at uh, in Vancouver at Regent College, um, not really knowing what I'd do. I did an English degree in spiritual theology because I thought they were cool. Um, and had a, and I didn't, I really genuinely didn't know what I was going to do. And uh, Maxine Hancock, who was my English professor at the time, sat down with me and she said, well, you love teaching and you love research. And I said, yes, I do. And she said, that's what professors do. And I was like, oh, really? I didn't realize that. <laughs> and she said, I think you could be one. And I was like, I'm not sure about that. Um, that kind of seems like a big job. Um, but uh, but then from there, another professor uh, who had had for two New Testament classes, uh, Rick Watts said, 
I think you should go into biblical studies, just as I was finishing a degree in English and spiritual theology. And uh, I was like, hmm, well, you know, that's not the area I've been studying, um, but uh, maybe I could try. And so I did an extra year of biblical studies courses, New Testament and uh, Hebrew Bible and some Hebrew classes. And I I went into a PhD completely unlike everybody else uh, with the belief that I was going to fail and um, spent the first year really, really trying to become a biblical scholar uh, because I'd go into class and people would talk about books that I'd never heard of before and names of people I'd never read. Um, so I'd make these long lists and just read all night um, trying to catch up um, and eventually did catch up, thankfully, um, did a degree that was in the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So that's kind of a metaphor. Um, and so, yeah, so I uh, taught for a few years in Miami before getting my job here in Calgary and uh, love, love teaching at the seminary where I am right now and uh, getting to teach with my colleague, uh, Colin, which is kind of awesome too, getting to teach with one of my best friends. So yeah, so that's, that is my story. And now, and now you, instead of opening up and doing surgery on people's brains, you, <laughs> you just break people's brains in class. as often as possible. Lots of breaking brains, <laughs> but like in a spiritual <laughs> metaphor. sense. Yeah. Absolutely. So thanks so much for telling us both your stories. Um, I'm interested in, um, in the book that we're discussing today, which is your book, uh, the book of the 12, uh, which is in the Cascade Companions series. Uh, and it's an introduction to, um, to something called the book, of the 12. So the first uh, thing I want to ask about this book is, is what led you to become interested in uh, what some people call the minor prophets or the book of the 12 in the old Testament. David, you want to start that? Sure thing. Yeah. For, for me, it was a bit of a long journey. Um, obviously being at McMaster Divinity College, being around Dr. Mark Boda and fellow students, there was a lot of talk about it, about the Book of the Twelve. Um, so I'd heard a little bit about it, but my my journey started with uh, Habakkuk specifically. Um, you know, I'd settled on Habakkuk as a dissertation focus, um, probably around the time I was finishing up my comprehensive exams, and my dissertation ended up being a, a discourse analysis of Habakkuk, which was a, a very uh, detailed. You could say text internal study of the book. Um, it's very focused on the Hebrew text of the book and some new new ways we can trace patterns throughout the whole to uh, if we get get more value out of out of the uh, the book in and of itself. And and after finishing up that study and focusing so intently on one one small corpus, uh, then I started to see uh, the relevance of branching out into its canonical context and looking at what people previously had said about the nature of the Book of the Twelve as maybe a deliberately edited collection or deliberately arranged corpus uh, got me thinking, well, maybe um, maybe this larger whole is very important for making, making sense of the smaller parts. Um, what if, in fact, Habakkuk was designed so that it um, maybe, maybe needed to be read in light of this, this larger whole that it's sitting within? Um, so that was that was that was my journey from one very small part of the twelve outwards into into the larger corpus. Yeah, and I think um, I fell in love with parts of the twelve when I was in university. Um, I 
had this journey with God where I kind of walked away from God at the start of university. And part of my journey back was actually Hosea kind of brought me back. And so because Hosea had been um, this part of that journey. And then shortly after that, Haggai, like I actually just had this relationship with these books before I thought of them academically. I had like a devotional relationship with them. And then um, in my PhD, um, I started doing some connections between particularly Zechariah and different parts of the New Testament. And I was really interested in particularly the metaphors and how and illusions and how they work between the two. And, um, and, Mark Boda, being the kind and uh, thoughtful person he was, was like, well, maybe you should do more in this work um, and kind of pressed me into thinking about would I want to do more writing in the 12? Um, and in, and I because I'm a literary person, I'm always really interested in how things are connected thematically, how are things connected through metaphor, through illusion, how, what, how does intertextuality work? Those are all like the kinds of questions I'm always fascinated with because my first two degrees were in English. and um, And so... I find that that is a really lush, full question in the 12, in the book of the 12 and the Minor Prophets. Um, and that really sparked my interest and excitement, um, really because I could use uh, these diverse literary methods um, to approach to approach uh, these books um, in new ways. So that made me excited. And so kind of like a follow-up question on that, um, David and Beth, how did the book come together though so you're both interested in it and then there's a book now you know so, what, <laughs> what did, so how did how did that how did that what's that process look like yeah, so I got approached by Robin Perry at uh, Wiffenstock, who runs the Cascade series, um, about whether a book like this was possible. Um, and he and I had a conversation because he knew that I was writing a commentary um, on the Minor Prophets already. Um, and he and I kind of connected in various ways from other projects. And so we were just chatting about it. And I got and I got really excited and I thought, um, who would I like to do this with? <laughs> and um, and so I thought, I really love David, David's work and, and as a friend. And, you know, and, and so I asked if David would be interested in doing this alongside me. Um, and David can speak from there if you want to. <laughs> sure, sure thing. I'm happy to jump in. Yeah. So from from my vantage point, um, first I heard of it was. I suddenly got an initial invitation from Beth in October of 2019. Uh, so for me, that was just an email that, uh, yeah, suddenly suddenly came up and it was just, uh, it was amazing timing. I was just so excited about it because that was around the time that I'd just finished up the, uh, the long process of publishing my dissertation. Um, a very, you know, obviously a very, very technical uh, niche study and Around the time I was finishing my degree, I remember Dr. Boda saying, you know, after you get your dissertation out, you really need to be able to demonstrate breadth. You need to be able to demonstrate that you can write for a broader audience as well. So you should think about uh, branching out into something more, more accessible, more, more pop level. And I really, I really didn't know how to do that. So I, I was scratching my brain. So suddenly it was such, such a blessing to hear from Bath with this great invitation. So Naturally, I was excited um, because I, I'd also wanted to branch more into the broader 12 myself. And again, thinking, okay, how, what are the pathways to doing that? So, um, yeah, so we decided to do it. And we had um, yeah, a really productive in-person meeting at SBL, 
uh, in San Diego, then in the next month, in November of 2019. Uh, so we started off by getting the proposal confirmed. We uh, talked about the different subject areas we wanted to cover, uh, how we would structure the volume. So we, we started off by trading ideas, working out a table of contents. Um, so once we had that, that approved and had run, run that by Robin Perry, the, uh, the writing process, for the most part, um, consisted of, of Beth sending me a bibliography for each chapter, um, you know, because she had so much, so much experience and, and previous work in, in all these areas. So then I would read through the sources, uh, sift through them, come up with a, an outline. We'd talk about the outline together. Uh, then I'd usually do a, a, a preliminary rough draft. Uh, and then Beth would revise, rewrite, and and Beth uh, did a lot of expansion. Most of the uh, the theological reflections, application, uh, study questions, those were all Beth. Um, so then we'd we'd get a full draft together, um, go over it a bit more. Um, so yeah, so we we just traded chapters back and forth like that for uh, the next little while and then we submitted the full manuscript in January 2022 my memory serves correctly and that was fairly remarkable because that was only three months later than we'd initially projected and which in light is shocking of, <laughs> yeah very, very shocking in light of everything that both of us yeah. had gone through uh personally through that time I I'd had a child I'd done a move um Beth had some exciting things happen at SBL the previous year and yeah, so that was really exciting to come to the end of the process, and we're certainly very grateful for all the uh, all the assistance and support Whip and Stock showed us through the way. Yeah, um, especially at the very end when we were in the proofing and indexing and, and production mm-hmm. stage, they were they were amazing to work with. Yeah, and I'd say and I think you we know, all know that three months. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Beth. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, um, I was just going to say that, uh, that, you know, when we were looking at creating that table of contents and the framing, we were looking at some of the other cascade volumes that were really theological in nature. Um, so some of the books like the theology of Paul and sort of those kinds, um, really inspired us, um, to think about what it would look like to write, to write what we were doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, Colin, you're gonna say something about three months. <laughs> oh no. I, yeah. I was going to say, I think we all know that three months, uh, three months late is actually like nine years early in academic like way ahead of what mm. I, most of my projects yeah. are so uh, i've never uh, been within driving distance of that i can say <laughs> to my editor's chagrin in a number yeah. of cases um I think one of, oh yeah, i was just ahead. gonna say one of the things that was really fun i think is that we really thought together through the process of what is it we want each chapter to be and what are the key things for each chapter that matter as a starting place for all of our writing. And I think that it was interesting because I think we did, we just have different strengths and different interests. And so it really, I think, I think what we put together with the two of us was more than either of us would have created by ourselves, just because each of us has different things that, um, that we brought into that conversation. Um, in a couple of places, I was, I was definitely like, David, I'm leaning on you hard for this part. And um, because that's, that's really where your strengths lie. Um, and so that was part of, I think, what was cool about the co-rating pro- aspect of the process. Yeah, no, I will say reading the book, I, uh, I was doing a little redaction criticism in my, in my head as I was going along. I'm like, this <laughs> is definitely David. 
<laughs> this is definitely that. Not everywhere, but there are a few places I can, I can definitely tell. Um, so speaking about the, the book itself, the content of the book, um, can you talk to us a little bit about, um, I'm not sure that I'd say the thesis of the book, but but like the purpose of the book, maybe even. What is the book about? And, and, and to a certain degree, what is this book for? How is it contributing either to existing scholarship or to um, making that scholarship accessible for the book of the 12th? David, you want to start that? Sure thing. Yeah, yeah, Colin. I, I think in a in a nutshell, um, I think no one's really done an introductory textbook style book on the twelve like this before. Um, you know, going through the research process for this book, I, I looked at a lot of other introductory resources on the minor prophets, and and most of them still treat the books as being separate. And obviously, that's uh, very important and worthwhile in its own right, but. Um, there really is no resource out like this uh, previously that covers all of the lines of scholarly discussion in reading the 12 as a unified collection. Um, so I think our book provides a very accessible entryway into this world of scholarship, um, you know, in, in order to gather all the sources and sift through all the previous conversations on this, we were going through a lot of, you know, obscure essays and very technical edited volumes all these journal articles, cer certainly things that would be uh, very hard for the average, even the average student to draw together. Um, so yeah, many of these arguments and concepts have never really been brought together and compared in this, uh, in, in this way before. Mm -hmm. So if we were to say an overall thesis, I think it's that reading the 12 as a unified collection is, is worthwhile. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that the key difference isn't necessarily that I don't know that we were trying to offer um, something that had never been said before, but it's really who we're saying it to. Um, I think that this is intended to be something that I often thought like, could, could the, could, could the average person pick this up and read it and have it be meaningful to them? Um, and that was really the aim of the style of writing we tried to use, the the way we use sources, how we talked about um, even the jargon or lack of jargon, um, trying to trying to take things that have been presented in like very high level scholarship and make it something that um, someone could pick up and, and really feel like, oh, I get it. I get this conversation because um, we felt because we really feel like these themes, um, this theology of the 12 is meaningful. Um, and we wanted to make sure that people got a chance to, to read it and to understand it. Um, I mean, in some cases, there's only been a few books on the topic and they've only been written from scholars to scholars. And there hasn't been anything on those topics that have been written to somebody who's, you know, just like picking it up and wanting to learn about it. So, um, so that was important to us. Yeah, yeah. And I would say I really commend that actually about the book, uh, because I agree with both of you that that there there really isn't a, a good general introduction to this topic out there. It, well, there's now, right? You, uh, you've written it for us, which is, uh, which is a wonderful contribution, because until now, people have to go to technical literature to get to some of this. So yeah, no, this is this is sort of a thank you um, for uh, for pastors or for students or for people who want to get into this conversation, you provided, I think, a really great resource. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think maybe that, yeah, just jumping off what Colin's saying, it is, I think, a really unique resource. I've been struck by that too. But so maybe, maybe you've already answered their question um, and what you've just said, but do you, what do you think a major misconception about the Book of the Twelve is? Like, 
in either, I guess, at scholarly level or, or just a, a popular um, in churches. Yeah, um, I mean, one of the things I thought about is there's certain books, especially the smaller books in the Book of the Twelve, that are scary for a lot of people, or they don't even know that they exist. So, like Nahum and Obadiah, which yeah. are really yeah. tiny, and when you start reading them, they're like, "All these people should die in horrible ways." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, God, yeah. please strike them down. Um, they're not the kind of books where it feels really natural to be like, as a new Christian, we think you should read this book. Um, and so um, it can give a misconception. Well, first of all, it can lead into the what I think is a broader misconception of the Old Testament, that God is always a wrathful God in the Old Testament. Um, I think that it can... It means that also um, each of these books can sometimes be treated like they are minor, uh, not just because they're small, but because they're unimportant. Um, Mm. Like if you compare how many people read Isaiah or read Jeremiah or Ezekiel compared to those who are familiar with Zephaniah, um, that's just a really different number. (laughs) And so... um, I mean, I think that that's, to me, that's the biggest misconception is that these, um, those minor prophets, they're not that important. Um, and so, but they have a lot of theology in them that we don't see in other places. And they have ways of connecting, um, like explaining who God is and what God is doing that I think people can miss if they don't get to read them. So, um, Danny, David, do you want to add to that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank, thanks so much for those thoughts, Beth. Um, yeah, I think, I think for myself, uh, there were actually maybe some things I I learned in the process of writing this book and reflecting on these discussions. Um, one thing it really helped me see is that when we interpret, uh, we're, we're not just looking at what's on the page. Um, this literature is intentionally intertextual, and literature actually calls us to compare it with other writings to place it in its larger context. Um, it also helped me to... Uh, maybe work out some more thoughts on the tension between seeing historical context as being ultimately determinative of meaning as compared to a a later crafted canonical context, you know, especially with books like Joel, when you have it uh, surrounded, surrounded by some books that have very clear uh, superscriptions with very precise dates and, and chronologies. And then in the middle, you have Joel, who's this kind of mystery man. Um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure Colin can, can tell us all about the book of Joel, but um, it, it, I just found it very interesting because in, in a lot of evangelical resources, we have this, uh, this tendency to really want a concrete historical setting to, to ground the meaning of the book. And, and obviously exploring that is, is a great question. It's, it's a very important question to explore, but, but it also helped me um, reflect on how with some books, maybe the lack of such a setting is deliberate. And this was actually a whole topic area I was drawing from just last semester when I was teaching a, um, a, a THM and PhD class on the book of Jeremiah. And we were reading through some resources in the history of interpretation of Jeremiah and talking about the contrasting research paradigms of what some have called the biographical slash psychological and the traditio historical schools. And just talking about how Obviously, there are there are very clear indications of chronology in some parts of Jeremiah. Um, other parts, though, seem to have been added later. And it's very interesting. In some resources, there's this need to come up with a reconstructed historical background for these these passages. When, well, maybe they were 
they were written later, but were not necessarily going to be helped by finding when that later was, so much as knowing that they were being written inspired by these other writers. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think that was uh, actually kind of a major paradigm paradigm shift moment for a lot of a lot of my students thinking about how okay, working for the evangelical tendency to identify that dating of the passage is helpful, except when the passage is maybe telling us not to. So there's yeah all, all sorts of things to explore there. Yeah, or when the passage just just radically denies the question, right? Like you're saying with Joel, like I mean. You you tell me when Joel was written. It's an impossible <laughs> question. Uh, I, th- I tell my students that I think the date range for Joel is something like seven hundred years, possibly like five, six, seven hundred years. Mm-hmm. So this gigantic date range. But this actually raises a really interesting question. Then um, that you're you're sort of getting us into here, David, which is which which fits with questions about the Book of the Twelve to me. Um, our habit traditionally, when we think about uh, prophets and prophecy, is to think about a prophet who says something to people, and that's God's word, and the people hear it, and then somebody writes that down. But this kind of problematizes that notion, even just what you were just say, saying about moving contexts and literary histories and canonical contexts. So with that in mind, with those shifts in mind, um, what is prophecy now in this paradigm? And what is a prophetic book? And how do we think about prophecy? How has this maybe changed some of that for us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting the whole notion that we we're really interesting about this because actually we're inconsistent about to what degree we actually think this um, biography piece matters. So I often say to students, like, we don't know who wrote Hebrews and we don't care. So we don't care about Hebrews, like who wrote it ultimately. We don't know. And we're comfortable with that because we don't put it in the same category as. The prophets, and we tend to think of the prophets like this is this person, and it matters that this person is speaking in this way. Um, but I actually think that in in many ways, what we see in prophecy is a combination of God using a particular person in a particular setting, but also that word of God that continues from generation to generation. And so a lot of times I'll say, you know, we don't have a problem when we jump to our context and say, we believe this means something for us today, but it makes us uncomfortable when we think of in-between stages. Um, but I often think that the when we think of prophetic literature, if it's a word from God, it's a continuing word from God. And so I don't have the same um, intensity of saying it always has to be located only in um, the only context where God is speaking is the original context of that first word. So an example of this would be Hosea. I think Hosea was a real person who prophesied and God spoke through him. But I also think that Hosea as a book continued to be meaningful in later generations. And when was it was put together with these other books, continued to have meaning that God was giving to the people in a new context. And I just think of that as the same thing as similar ideas when we think of God continuing to speak into the New Testament, um, that God, we believe God kept speaking. And so, um, so to me, that's a part of how I modify that idea of prophecy, that it's not just in a single prophet. Um, but in that whole movement of how God uses those those words um, throughout history. And so that that would be my take on it. And David, I'm happy to hear where, where you would go. You might go somewhere different. <laughs> wow, th- thanks so much. I, I really um, appreciated what both Colin and Beth had to say. 
Yeah, Colin, I think you were spot on in identifying sort of the, the older paradigm that many, many evangelicals have inherited. When I when I read this question in the list yesterday, just out of curiosity, I um I, I looked into the Old Testament survey textbook that I'm uh using for my intro course coming up. And sure enough, they define prophet as a as a called one, a messenger from God warning the people to repent and remember their responsibilities. And it said that in every case, you know, a prophet originally spoke orally and then their words were were gathered together. So it's it's amazing just how how deeply embedded these assumptions are and and really made universal um, when even you know even within the 12 itself, uh, we actually do seem to see a, a shift from books that uh, probably did collect originally orally delivered sermons like uh, Hosea and Amos for sure. And then other books, um, you know, like Colin has said about Joel, which maybe seems to have actually started in the library. Um, and then certain, certainly the, the posting to look books, which also seem to have started in the writing phase as well. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see how there, there is maybe a bit of a gap in some of, some of our introductory resources in, in explaining, in explaining some of these diverse composition pro- processes. Um, one concept I've found helpful with my students is, uh, reminding them that in the threefold Hebrew canon, the prophets include Joshua, Kings too. So there, there has to be something broader going on in how a book can function prophetically than just including uh, sermons originally orally delivered. Um, yeah, and, and even even in contrast with some older, uh, more critical scholarship as well, um, where the book was seen maybe as a vehicle to recover that revelation and not the revelation itself. I think now we're in an exciting place where we can see editorial arrangement as being deliberate and important, uh, not a later intrusion to be excised. And, and also that these arrangements make the book uh, intended to be read in, in concert with other prophetic book. Just to, to touch on, um, echo some of, some of what Beth said. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really interesting way to think about things. And so, so can we maybe bridge from there into talking about that exact question? Um, why should we think of these 12, what, what have traditionally, if we're being frank with ourselves, for a long time been considered 12 distinct uh, prophetic pieces of prophecy? Why should we think of them as a book instead of 12 books? And um, what changes... Uh, between imagining these as separate books or imagining them as some kind of anthology or imagining them as some kind of unified book? Like what would change for us in between those different paradigms? If I, if I can imagine those as sort of three distinct paradigms, um, what, what is the consequence of this move? Before David. Okay. Sounds good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, I think, I think a great place to start uh, Colin would be with the final chapter of our book. Um, that was, to, to be honest, that, that one was a lot of fun to write, um, cause I got to write, uh, for myself, really, a, a nice, concise summary of all the arguments for why we would see signs of editorial arrangement in the 12. Um, I got to outline the different models of redaction in the 12, which in my humble opinion, I, I don't really think such a, a detailed summary has been available in English language scholarship, uh, previously. And even uh, look through some of the counter arguments, uh, primarily from Ehud Ben Zvi, 
uh, who also makes some, I think, very, very important points uh, we should consider. So, yeah, to more uh, directly answer your question, what is the best evidence uh, for reading the 12 as, as a book rather than 12 books? Um, I outline the superscriptions. So we certainly have, it seems like there might have been previous subcollections in the 12 that are linked together by superscriptions. So scholars talk about an earlier book of the four of Hosea, Amos, Micah, and Zephaniah. Uh, if you compare them, they have a very similar style of superscriptions. So that seems to hold them together. And then we see, likewise, we see um, very similar superscriptions bridging together Haggai and first half of Zechariah, and then the second half of Zechariah and Malachi. Um, so that, that seems to indicate that the same hands were doing work on these on these same books, and furthermore, that they were binding the books together and gave, giving readers signals on, on how they were arranged uh, chronologically and thematically. Um, one other line of evidence that um, uh, had a lot of contributions from James Nagelsky is catchwords. So we'll see some really interesting phrases that occur right at the end of one book and then the beginning of the next book. Um, maybe indicating that the books are meant to be read together or maybe meant as a as, as glue to hold them together. Mm -hmm. um, now, some of these are maybe more convincing than others. Um, like Ehud Ben-Zvi makes some points about some of them that shows, okay, maybe maybe this is just very common vocabulary or he's like, maybe, maybe if I'm using vocabulary this broadly, I could bridge others together. But now, certainly some of them are very clear, like um, the bridge from Joel into Amos, for instance. Um, you actually have a couple good lines of poetry that are very, very ver uh, verbally similar there. So clearly, there, when you have multiple links like that, there seems to be something going on um, with uh, those those intertextual ties. Um, yeah. So then you're asking about separate books, anthology, unified books. So yeah, certainly if they're separate books, then then the books are meant to be read in isolation, and that wouldn't exclude the possibility that the books are maybe referencing back to previous books, but they have a they would then have a message that more or less stands on its own. Uh, there'd be an emphasis on historical setting. With anthology, that would maybe take us to the Ehud Ben Z model, where the books are meant to be separate, but they all basically originated in the same small scribal circles um, and are meant to be compared. So readers are maybe encouraged to compare what they say about different topics, to compare the different phrases and, and metaphors throughout. Um, but, but ultimately, they're kind of ahistorical, and they're, they're just at a generic Persian period setting. Um, and then for a unified book, though, that, that gives us a lot more things we can do. We can look for plot. We can look for thematic development throughout. Uh, we can look at for allusions and conversation as being key to the individual book's message, uh, rather than reading them in isolation as message from lone individuals. And, and certainly, as we just look at the uh, phenomenon of some of these books, I I think that's very convincing. Um, you know, think of the uh, the famous lines near the beginning of Malachi. Um, you know, that everyone knows the echo in Romans: "Jacob have I loved, Esau have I have I hated." Um, I'm sure some people reading Romans see it's from Malachi, look back at Malachi and stop there. But 
But really, it's it's pretty hard to make sense of what that means in Malachi unless you back up Obadiah and, and Amos as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then certainly from my own my own work in Habakkuk, um, reflecting on that book, um, the more I read it carefully and compare what different people have said about it, the message of Habakkuk is a little hard to make sense of in isolation because you know it's there's a punishment coming. The book doesn't really spell out why. Uh, the book is protesting this punishment. So there, there's really a lot of, of background information we need to fill in from elsewhere uh, to make sense of what's going on. Uh, so even, even if you, you maybe don't buy the, uh, you know, the U-shaped comedy model of Paul House or something, uh, there definitely does seem to be something that's calling on outside information and calling on other gaps. And I've even uh, tried to do some work work elsewhere that shows that Habakkuk is intentionally doing some very unique things with certain certain illustrations, um, like his cry of praise at the end of the book, or even um, you know, more recently the way that divine and human power seem to be interplaying throughout as, as it sits between Nahum and Zephaniah that that points to being meant to be read in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll put a pin in it now. Yeah, I would say another thing. Um, I, I would agree with everything that David just said, first of all. Um, but I would also say, you know, we have some historical evidence of people around the, you know, the second, the first, sorry, the first century CE around Jesus's time who read the book as one book. Um, so we have references in Josephus and in other writings around that time. Some of the early church fathers spoke of this section of writings as a 12, um, rather than thinking of them as individual books. And so, um, so that is another kind of reason to lean into that direction for reading besides all the other things that David mentioned as evidence. Um, I also think that, you know, the idea that when you read things together, when you put things next to each other to understand them, it is going to create richness that you don't have when you read things in isolation. Um, I'm going to give a weird comparison um, because I give weird comparisons all the time, but um, having all of us having gone through COVID and the experience of what it is to be in isolation, <laughs> um, we know that when we interact with others, we have a different experience than when we don't. Um, and when we read these books in isolation, when we read them as individual books, rather than in the context or in relation to each other, it is simply the case that you will see more connection, more relationship, more um, related imagery. You'll see uh, really just a deeper richness and connection to each other. Um, um, so there you go. That's my uh, my COVID comparison, everybody. <laughs> Relevant for everything. <laughs> um, um, no matter how much we want to try to forget it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's yeah. ever present. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so I'm interested then too in um, in not only this discussion as it relates to uh, to the twelve as such. But what does this discussion about the 12 help us to understand about um, about method generally in biblical scholarship? And I think, David, you've talked around this a few times already. Um, are there, uh, what's the right way of saying this? Are there trickle-down benefits uh, for non-specialists? Or this, is this just a specialist's conversation? Or, or does this play out uh, um, for other people to help us figure out um, how uh, pieces of the scriptures are put together and how they function in relationship to one another. So does this teach us things about other things in the Bible as well? David, you want to start us? First thing, 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Colin. We um, even have uh, that. That's actually wrote a whole chapter in the book about um, different methods that are being innovated in the study of the twelve. So, as she's touched on uh, the role of metaphor, especially when you see metaphors maybe dynamically interplaying with each other across books, um, the use of linguistics. I think is also uh, really unique. Um, so both uh, both you and, and myself have um, you know have done major in depth studies of some of these shorter books in the twelve using using linguistics um, that I think has highlighted some real um, real possible insights for being able to reconstruct uh, social context setting, being able to uh, just look for for meaning and interpretation and, and things like that. Um, yeah, like, like like I said before, I think I think the Book of the Twelve offers a very unique example and very uh, striking illustration of the interplay between what scholars would call synchronic and diachronic questions. Uh, we have a corpus that was edited together um, by individuals who were working in in very particular historical settings, uh, but was ultimately intended to be read in an order. Uh, perhaps different than the original historical progression. And as we look at scholarship on the Book of the Twelve, as, as we touch on in the last chapter of the book, there, there are scholars who come up with very, very precise and very definite reconstructions of exactly what that editing and exactly what that compositional context looked like, um, you know, with the assumption that these different layers were meant to speak very directly to the different uh, political and social issues going on into these later historical periods, um, but even you know even if even if one doesn't necessarily follow these reconstructions, we can we can see that okay there's something going on here that these books were meant to ultimately have a synchronic message um, in that final period of time which we could loosely identify as being in the post-exilic period. Um, and we we can see value in in thinking about the original historical setting of these books, but also okay, how do they, how are they meant to function together and have meaning in in that in that new context? And I think that because we're asking those method questions, which you know when we use a lot of these different terms, people may hear that and say that sounds very specialist. Like that's a very specialist conversation. But when you think about like the the chapters that come out of this in our book, I mean, we're looking at what was the value of David's monarchy? To what degree was that meaningful for the people? What does it mean for God to be king? What does it mean for therefore for Jesus to be king, right? We're asking questions about repentance and return, um, which are questions that all of us are asking, you know, what does it look like for God to call us to return to him? And I'll return to you with this hope of, of that sense that we, we all need this be ability to return to God and to be called towards that. Um, I mean, the hope of the day of the Lord, we see all over the New Testament um, that as Jesus comes, we see this picture of the day of the Lord here with us. Um, and to understand that, be understanding that within the 12 is incredibly helpful because seeing how that theme develops across the 12 then sets us up for what we see in the New Testament. Um, when we're thinking about what it means to, to look at the, the world around us, the creation that God made, the land that God made, and then like, what does it mean to ask questions about whether God is good and just in a situation of, of suffering? Um, where is hope? And, you know, so 
joining these books together and thinking of them in relationship to each other helps us ask some of the deep questions that we ask of God, we ask of the world around us that we want to know, like, God, what are you doing? Why are you here? What do you care for? What do you, how do you care for us? And so, you know, on the one hand, um, these can be very technical methodological questions that we as scholars really like to debate. Um, but they also, they set up the scene for us to ask questions that are really really deeply embedded in each of us as Christians um, for the things that matter to us. So I think that there is a sense in which they do transfer. Um, and that's at least the hope that I have in the book. That's great. And that actually kind of um, sets me up pretty well what you just said, Beth, because uh, we, we want to transition to not just thinking about the scholarship, but then thinking about how it connects to the life of the church. And I think you've already started us in that direction. And so um, that's, I kind of have a two-part question here mm-hmm. and uh, you can just do with it what you'd like, <laughs> just ignore one of the parts or whatever. But do you think that the Book of the Twelve makes a unique contribution to the canon? And if so, what is that contribution? Um, and especially as the Book of the Twelve, you know, as, as you guys are talking about. And then um, how do you think that God is speaking to the church today through these books? And maybe that is in connection with how this theme of the day of the Lord gets um, played out in scripture, how God, you know what I mean? Maybe it's a continuity, mm-hmm. but how do these books, um, how does God want to to speak to us? You know, that that all important question through these books. So yeah, sorry, just to say it again. So is there any contribution? And then what is God saying to us through these books? Well, I mean, parts of the book of the 12 are, I wouldn't say completely unique in the sense that um, it isn't anywhere else in the major prophets, but the minor prophets talk about a period of time that we don't get prophets in more broadly. So we have a whole section of the minor prophets that lead us into a period after the exile that they explore in detail in ways that other prophets don't give us. So they're talking about a time period. um, uh, Many of them are, and then we could talk about the whole 12 talking about it in this sort of time after the exile. So Israel has gone into exile. It's had, they've had the experience of the pain and loss of that, the questions that come along with that. They've built up certain hopes and they come back to the land and those hopes are not completely fulfilled. And one of the things that we're seeing in lots of the minor prophets is the tension, like the in, in the 12, we see the tension of things are not what we thought they would be. Now what God? Um, yeah. And so in many ways, um, it, it's this interesting space of expectation where some things are fulfilled, but not fully. Mm-hmm. And that that is a really, I think, part of what we get in an interesting way in the 12 that we just don't have in the same way in other in other books. Um, and I think, um, I mean, there's lots of also, I would say, um, I mean, Zechariah is a great example of a book that is one of the most used in the New Testament. So um, C.H. Dodd, who works in how the Old Testament is used in the New, uh, went through and basically said, how many times are each of the different books in the Old Testament used in the New Testament? And I mean, obviously, Psalms, Isaiah, they're used a lot, but Zechariah is used a ton. And so when we think about what we lose if we don't have these books, I mean, we actually lose the foundations of parts of the New Testament as well. And so, um, so you know, that's, I think, another part of what we're seeing in terms of their value. Um, I don't know if you wanted to add to that, David. Yeah, sure, sure thing. Uh, th- thanks for that, Beth. Um, certainly, certainly one thing that really struck me in our writing process, uh, certainly the chapter on repentance and return, but I think this was even uh, 
reinforced in different ways as we explored the day of the Lord and the theme of the Davidic monarchy was this narrative of covenant on faithfulness and divine initiative. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw, we, you know, we see how the 12 starts with the, the calls to return, um, how we, things are sinking and the people are basically told that they're at the point of no return in Amos. Um, but then it's Yahweh who takes responsibility for transit for transformation, uh, especially some of the language we see in Zechariah and Malachi. Um, yeah, I, I just found that to be very, um, yeah, very, very challenging. And, uh, yeah, re- refreshing. I'd never seen that before. And cer- certainly echoing uh, what Beth had said as we work through these portraits of repentance, it was very interesting to see um, how diverse they were. And also, um, as we, we touched on a, a little bit, just uh, the call to reflection on what the breadth of the ministry of, of Christ in the New Testament looks like, both in, in fulfilling these and, and also their continued challenge uh, to what obedience looks like today. And can I just ask a follow-up question on what you just said, David? So what this is such a broad question, so I don't know if it's fair, but how do these books find fulfillment Christologically, I guess? And how are they used to speak of Christ? I guess is a, a follow-up question I would have what you've just said. Well, that's that's a great question, Ryan. We we only touched on that in, in little places, usually right at the end of each chapter. And to be honest, most of those parts were uh were Beth's contributions. Yeah, but uh, no, certainly I think. I, think, uh, <laughs> I mean, here's I, I the think, thing. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, yeah, no, no. Yeah, finish yeah. what you were going to say, and then I'll, I'll I'll follow up. Yeah, no, cer- certainly um, they give us a lot to think about, especially the uh, the most post-exilic books. There's a lot of Baltic imagery. Um, so much talking about about temple and purity, fulfillment, even um, even. Uh, the drawing in of the nations, and it's all centered in temple. Um, so that that would certainly give us a lot to talk about. Um, New Testament with Jesus as the great high priest, the sacrifice, the temple. Um, and then, like like I mentioned previously, we also did a, a chapter on the Davidic monarchy and all the questions on, okay, what, what exactly happens to the Davidic monarchy in the Book of the Twelve? Uh, what, what kind of hope does it project for the future? And we, we saw these interesting trends, um, broadly speaking, of both democratization and transition to Yahweh himself. So it seems that it seems that a lot of these functions of the Davidic king are actually pushed onto the people as a whole. Um, but then this this leader figure is relocated from the expectation of a, of a human king from a particular lineage to to Yahweh himself. So again, I think there's a lot. There'd be a lot to unpack there about the ministry of Christ, the Son of God, and then also the church as the the body of the Christ, as the body of Christ um, in the world. And I'll, I'll let Beth take over from here. So I'm going to give a I'm going to give a sneaky answer that combines eschatology and Christology. So I'm going to combine the notion of sort of what happens in the age to come with who is Jesus and what does that why does that matter? Um, mm-hmm. You know. 
I think, you know, we we went through each section and talked about the ways in which some of the New Testament picks up things like descriptions of kingship in Micah or picks up uh, descriptions of kingship, for an example, in Zechariah 9, where we get this picture of the king who comes into a city. And then that's used in places like John 12, where um, where that's used to talk about what kind of king is Jesus, who is who is coming into this city. Um, and, and in John's gospel, um, the emphasis is that when Jesus comes in, yes, he's people praise him, but they're they're the wrong people that in terms of anticipation. They're like, they're not the they're the wrong people. I have quotation marks, by the way, that everyone can see, but you can't hear. Um, <laughs> you know, they're the people that um they're the they're the everyday people, they're not the people in power. Um, and so, you know, the expectation Jesus comes in and he comes in in humility, but also his power and humility coming in together. And that that we understand that if we've read Zechariah. Um, so we understand like the kind of king that that he will be. And also, um, John's gospel again um uses Zechariah also to talk about the piercing of Jesus, like the what happens to what happens to Jesus, um, and um and the lament that goes along with that. So there's there's that aspect, but there's also all of this day of the Lord imagery. And the day of the Lord imagery is incredibly important to the New Testament. Um, I mean, we think of Acts 2, and Peter gives this sermon in Acts 2 where he just the, the the roof has been blown off. The um everyone's got tongues of fire on top of their heads. The spirit is here. And Peter's like, well, okay, okay, how do I talk about this? And what he does is combine a psalm about David that's that's also about kingship with Joel. And he's like, you know what? That expectation we had, it's here and it's here because of Jesus. Like it's here because of Jesus and because of the Holy Spirit. Now we have experienced God with us. It is the day of the Lord come now. And that when you look around, you can see it. But how do they know that? They know that because they all read Joel or heard Joel, right? Um, and they they make those connections because they're, oh, hey, he's referencing David in Psalms. Oh, hey, he's referencing the day of the Lord in Joel. And so they that builds on this like, like all this expectation. So, um, so in a sense, as we think about, like, I always say to my students, do you want to know who Jesus is? Read the Old Testament, then read the New Testament. Because what happens is it expands the picture of who Jesus is, what is what is, what is he coming into in terms of expectation? Um, how do they see who he is? Um, I would say that, you know, almost every one of the different terms used of Jesus has some connection in some way to different parts, either uh, to the my, to the book of the 12 or to other parts of the prophets. And so you get, you get this language of who Jesus is, son of God, the language of him as the son of man, that's all prophetic language that is used again and again, psalm, psalm language and prophetic language. And, and so um, my Jesus in the Old Testament class, which I get to teach next year, yay, um, we go through and we say, let's start with the Old Testament to frame, to understand what the gospels are doing when they talk mm. about Jesus. Let's yeah. talk about how Acts is talking about Jesus using yeah. the Old Testament. So I think that that, to me, that matters for the church because it helps us to know who Jesus is in a deeper, richer way um, and to not um, limit Jesus, um, to to see the fullness of what they were expecting. So. Yeah. Can I press you on that for a second? Like, do you think you can understand Jesus apart from the Old Testament, even just say broadly, like, really? So, 
Yeah. I mean, here's what I understand is always an interesting word. So um, I did a, I did a podcast a long time ago, an interview where um, my, you know, my tradition, we, with the vineyard tradition, we don't train people even to be pastors necessarily, right? Like no one's required to do an MDiv. Like it's not, it's a we. So we don't, <laughs> my personal tradition is like, are you listening to God? Cool. Did you read the Bible? Cool. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> so because of that, you're going to be like such a crazy, weird hypocrite to be like, you must have read this much to know anything about Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that I often talk about scripture as being uh, like a well. And so you can gather water from the top of the well and it's real water. So anyone who is reading scripture, anyone who is seeking God um, while reading the Bible and also in community with others, like can, can know Jesus, can know God. Okay. But we can always swim deeper. There's always more water. Um, We can always go deeper, deeper, deeper into the well to know more. And so the answer to that is like, yes, people can know about Jesus without all of this, but do you want to know Jesus more? Do you want to grow in that? Um, And there's always more ways to grow. And so the idea is just, keep growing, right? Keep swimming down because yeah, there's really I, good water. <laughs> and I'd say the, to your point, Beth, that, that a, a really great, uh, a little piece of homework for listeners, if they, if they're up for it, if they want to, is, um, you guys identified a number of these themes you trace in the book, uh, that you do a great job of tracing. And I think that readers who read through the book and read through the 12, looking for those themes, they're going to make those Christological connections pretty naturally. And you're going to see things even that uh, Beth and David didn't speak about overtly uh, in any of those chapters, but they're going to they're going to pop pretty immediately like the one that Beth, one that Beth just mentioned you guys do talk about a little in the book, but lots of these themes are going to pop for you. Uh, so this is one of those opportunities to do that exact work you're talking about, to go deeper by imagining the way that God is speaking through these kind of complex interwoven themes that track all the way through the book of the 12. Yeah. Well, we're um, getting close to our time here. So um I think one last question that we had was, um, we'll, we'll let you ask the questions. Or, so the question is, um, is there a question you wish we would have asked like uh, today? Is, is there something you want to say about um, the Book of the Twelve or you wish we would have asked more about? David, do you have one? I honestly can't think of any questions. <laughs> I mean, I'm always interested in... I think we covered quite a few different things that we think about or that we write about, but I, I kind of think it's interesting because this, this, this particular interview, we did a lot thinking about a particular book that we're both working on. Um, I think it's always interesting to think about like the diverse things that we work in and how do they connect to maybe this one thing that we wrote? Mm-hmm. Cause I think both of us have written in different directions for other things as well that I do think shape and connect to this book and the way that it came about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's true of, um, of my work and of David's work in different directions. Like we've written other kinds of things um, that I think brought us to this work together. And you'll see flavors of that. But um, but I always think it's interesting, you know, some of the other questions that both of us have talked about um, in other writings. So like, you know, questions like right now, we both are in a book we're working on, like, like empire power and politics in the 12. Um, that's, I think some of what we wrote here in this book, like comes, has flown, has, has flown, has uh, developed into this other kinds of writings on these other topics. So I guess I might um, say like, 
how did writing this or how is the work in this connected to your other work might be the only other question that I would have asked. Um, Because I think it's kind of cool to see how these other pieces of what we work on flow in. Um, so I think we did a little of that, but I just think that would be cool. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, we'll have to have you back on the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, I should. Well, you know, I'll be on the podcast a lot for other yeah, things. Exactly, so yeah. You're going to get to hear a lot yeah, of yeah, yeah, listeners. Yeah. You might get another chance to talk about that, but no, I, that, that would have been, that's a great thought. So yeah, well, we have a couple um, just marginalia, just wanted to get to know you. And so um, we'll just... Um, kind of more like lightning round style, but I'd love to, you can explain a little bit about what, um, why you would answer what you'd answer. So um, Colin, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. Let's start with uh, ideal vacation. Where do you want to go? What do you want to do? <laughs> okay, I should say that we don't have these in advance, so I haven't thought about the answer oh, yeah, to yeah, yeah. it. I like the silence. Um, you you, you don't want to go anywhere. Yeah. You don't want to do anything. No, no, I want to go so many places. You just want to um, sit in your room and do scholarship. Yeah. Uh, um, actually, where David is is a place I want to go. So um, I've actually wanted to go to Seoul, Korea for a really long time. We had a trip with my best friend planned at one point. Um, and I've not gotten to go. So I'm not sure if it's the ideal vacation, but it's definitely one of the ones that's on my list. Um, I am a huge fan of Korean dramas and K-pop and lots of other embarrassing, uh, Korean things. <laughs> People aren't always very scholarly, but I really love them. Um, and, uh, so I took some, I took some introductory classes in Korean and so, yeah, so Seoul is actually on my list of places. So David, you know, I might get to come visit you at some point. <laughs> if that works out. So what about you, David? Sounds great. Um, you know, this might not be a nor- the most uh, common vacation spot, but I've always been very intrigued about visiting Greenland. Um, mm. just, I, love, I love the winter. I, I love mountains. I, I'd really love to uh, explore all, all the neat um, yeah, fe- feature, features it has. It's definitely on my list. That's funny. My husband wants to go to Iceland. So, um, you know, similar kind of dynamic. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. Um, So this one, um, you haven't seen it, which I like even that much more, but your biggest, (laughs) yeah, you really (laughs) just speak from the gut. But uh, so you, uh, what's your biggest pet peeve? Um, uh, Beth, we should, I'll start with you. Oh, what's my biggest pet peeve? Um, I don't have a lot of space for arrogance. Um, so, and more accurately, I don't have a lot of space for arrogance, who arrogance when it's not like someone is not willing to hear anyone besides their own voice. Um, so pet peeves go a lot around whatever that is. People who speak over others, people who don't really like listen to other people, people who think they always know more than other people do. Um, I don't particularly as a woman don't appreciate men doing that speaking over me. It's probably my biggest pet peeve. Um, poor Colin has seen me in various situations kind of give a look <laughs> like, did he just do that? Did he just do that? Okay. So um, I think that's probably my biggest pet peeve. I just um, want to say for the record, I don't think you've ever given me that look. That I no, 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 no. I just want to say that. Uh, no, no, no. Record. To be clear, I mean, I've given him a look when someone else was speaking to me. <laughs> that is very true. I have seen that look I have, many times. I have been, I've looked at Colin like, is this happening? Did, is this guy doing this? Uh, and does he think he's going to get away with it without getting to hear from me? Uh, so, um, yes. In a, you know, polite way. Um to, you know, hey, maybe don't do that. Probably not a nice thing to do. Um, so anyways, there you go. Yes. Colin has not done that. 
to clarify to listeners, Colin is not, Colin is very polite. Um, uh, yeah. That's great. That's great. What'd you do? It? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, it, it's funny just thinking about the uh, scholarly space we inhabit and situations we encounter. My, my answer would probably be very similar, similar to Beth's. Um, you know, I just, I think it's an amazing opportunity we have to vocationally be involved in uh, teaching and, and studying God's word. And, you know, we all, all of us have this uh, great passion to, uh, to bring forth things that are of value to, to share them with people in, in different ways. Um, so I guess one, one thing that has uh, gotten to be it sometimes is, you know, seeing people who, who want to be involved in, in that kind of occupation, but you know, some, sometimes it maybe seems like the desire is just to to sound clever or sound mm-hmm. provocative. Yeah. Um, may, maybe rather than genuinely edify or um, or build up. So um, yeah, I'll admit, so, sometimes sometimes when I I think that's what's going on, or I I think I detect that 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 can get to me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone in academia is so humble, you know, and plus so so so. <laughs> willing to listen um yeah anyhow unfortunately not but yeah. i will say i've met yeah. some really humble scholars it's actually really beautiful when you meet them um there's uh, craig keener is one of them who is just like one of the sweetest people when i was a student he he asked for me to pray for him before a presentation and i was so struck by the idea that i had something to give to him um and that he viewed it that way um mm-hmm. and i think i think it's actually I think it's actually a way of resistance, like a way for us to respond to say, like, hey, we uh, we will be kind and we will see the value in others. And anyways, sorry, I'm going to go get all manifesto on you guys. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah. Hey, thanks for sharing that. That's great. So I think um, maybe we just have, um, Colin, do you want to ask, you can maybe ask one last question and then we should wrap up here. Sure. Like one, one more fun question. Um, uh, who is your favorite author? Like all time, number one. Okay. Well, I can say who I have like the most books of. I'm not sure if I still would call her my favorite author because I probably would put a lot of other people beside her. Um, but I have an entire shelf of Madeline Ingalls books. Mm-hmm. And so I fell in love with her when I was a kid. Um, I have I have almost every single book she's ever published, including ones that are hard to find, um, because I just kept looking and looking and looking to make sure I had everything. And she's written everything from science fiction to devotional kinds of, or like reflection kind of writings to poetry to plays. Um, and yeah, so, um, and I, I took a class on children's literature just so I could write about her. Um, I have books about her just for, cause I think she's wonderful. And so, yeah, um, there's probably other pick. people. Yeah, she's amazing. So. High quality pick. Yeah. David, what about you? Well, you've really put me on the spot with this one. So I'm just going to say the first thing that, that popped into my head and, and qualified a bit. Um, the name that came to mind for me was actually David Bentley Hart. Now I've I've only read I've only read some parts of his corpus. And um yeah, I mean I, I would only agree with maybe some of what he's written, but every time I pick up something by him. I am I am quite amazed at the uh, the expressive capabilities of what can be achieved with um, with such a command of the English language and such a command of historical sources um, and and rhetoric. Um, 
maybe even if it's not always deployed in a in a humble spirit, as we were just talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think I think cer- certainly in terms of style and expression, there's um, a-, a lot to to appreciate and and learn, even even apart from some of the, the subject matter. Is that great? So, well, um, Beth and David, it's been great uh, talking with you today. Real pleasure. And Colin, it's been great having you on the podcast. Thanks for adding your wisdom here. Uh, and uh, we'd like to thank you, the listener, um, for joining us today, too. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Connect with us at more at bridgingtheology.com and also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram feeds at Bridging Theology. Um, thanks so much. Um, you've enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, this is great. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks. It was, it was a real honor to be included in this. Yeah. Thanks for having me on as a guest, too. That was lots of fun. <laughs>